sit back, relax, and enjoy the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This episode is number 37 for the week of February 24th, 2014. We have a full group of wonderful hosts today. I'm so excited to hear that. We have Dr. Delbert Jackson, PhD in biomedical engineering. Why, hello. We have Carolina Balkenbush. She is our registered dietitian out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Hello. And, of course, Christian Copley Salem, Salem, excuse me. Ah, You almost got it. Almost got it. PhD candidate, cell and molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Yay. And I am Scott Barnett. I am in the same degree program as Christian. We are moving forward in our degree (laughs) and with the show. So, um... This is the the standard. <laughs> Who had a good week? Anything exciting <laughs> happen? Please tell, boys and girls. I had a fantastic week playing League of Legends. Okay, I'm done. I've nerded out. <laughs> uh, I, two people try to get me to play that game, and I played for like four minutes each, and I've just, I just. How did you play for four minutes? It's just not. I can't get did into it. You quit it. in the middle. Uh, pretty much. Like you the know. minimum time is like a half hour. Yeah. Well, he was satisfied, so he thought it was over. Right. <laughs> Just <laughs> longer than he'd ever been around. That's what I'm known for. I get in and get out. <laughs> Don't dilly daddle. Anyone else? No, Scott. I want to hear about your week. <laughs> <laughs> you thrust this upon me. Well, what he was referring to is uh, I literally got back like two hours ago. I uh, I spent the last four or th- I'd say three and a half days in Death Valley. Uh, it's actually quite nicest time of year it was like in the high 70s so um it was it was a it was a pretty nice place there so uh i I, I, we had a really good time what can i say it's a it's a very unique place like i probably like two things i noticed i guess if i were to say and i won't make this too long uh first is the quiet we pulled into the park and you had to get like a little ticket to say that you can be in the park for a certain amount of days um wait you went there on purpose like you on real purpose, Went some family and friends Valley. were going there, and we decided to show up and and, and have a couple days there, and because we'd oh. never been before, and yeah, you know, it's one of those things people tell you about, you know. And when we got there, though, like, there's no birds, there's no streams, there's no cars, and I it was so quiet that it actually like sounded loud in my head. It's a very weird thing to describe. Like, it's kind of like one of those deprivation tanks. Like, I could hear my ears ringing from the silence. Like nothing. There was no wind nothing and it was absolutely so right out of the gate i'm like whoa this is going to be really interesting here but um uh you know it's an interesting place i highly recommend you go i think probably a more cynical person would say that it looks like a bunch of like tailings from a mining operation because it kind of does but it also has kind of this like magical je ne sais quoi like um all the colors are really muted it's a very like brown like light brown kind of desert sand color but then you come across these like violent accents of color out of the blue like have you guys seen those color runs before where you have like they throw the colored powder in the air it looks like a giant had basically thrown like 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 handfuls of that color run powder against the mountain and you get these weird palettes and these colors and it's super cool uh, from that sense, and as as most people know, it's like a couple hundred feet below sea level. So if you kind of really take a look around, you can see so easily how this used to be this ancient seabed. It kind of has that slow undulating feel about it, and you know it was um it was really cool. But uh, I I guess if I were to say anything about it, I would say it's a once in a lifetime trip for me, and I mean that because 
A, it was wholly unique, and everyone should do it, but it's also probably something I'll never do again. So, once in a lifetime. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you, you, you should. It, there's nothing like it on the planet. It is so unique. So, so if you find yourself with an opportunity to go there, I'd say do it. And I mean, you live in Nevada, like in Reno. It's like a six and a half location. hour drive, which is not nominal, but it's. <laughs> but how close different enough. is it? Like we are in oh, a desert. There are parallel. If you've been out to Fallon, you get the general feeling of the landscape, and I okay. know that's not a great sell for anyone who's been to Fallon, but. Uh, <laughs> But it does have. It's in this basin. It's not technically a valley. It, valley. It, it, it's. It is. It is completely unique. And 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 I will. I could honestly. There's some wonderful hikes we did there. Uh, valleys, little rifts, and things you go in. It's. Uh, it's very. It's very different. And, and and I'd be selling it short to say it's like. You know, it's only two hours from Vegas, and it's very different from Vegas. Again, if you go outside of Vegas, it's just pale rock everywhere you go, and it's hot. That's the base of this experience but then it gets heightened very quickly by the kind of unique things you can do so there we go that was my trip yay super duper i'll put some pictures up eventually um okay somewhere somewhere (laughs) (laughs) the audience may or may not see them uh it's it's yes probably not but uh not that there's anything (laughs) interesting i'll post them and i'll even put a link in the show notes but i i they're just personal photos i doubt anyone has a strong desire to see them hopefully they're not too personal <laughs> very personal photos um well shoot we're just moving right along does uh any we've had a whole week has anyone else done anything interesting before we push forward we're not going too fast here okay every week that we don't do a podcast like i spend the weekend in napa or do whatever blah blah blah. this week nothing okay well but on friday i'm leaving for napa <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good because uh, for those of you who don't know, we're taking a break next week. Uh, I'm going to be out of town again, and uh, then we're going to pick up the following week. So that's two weeks for everyone. I'm sure we'll have some interesting stories at that point. So um, from let, Scott, from no, I will. I, I'm going to at least. I'm taking a moratorium. I'm not going to speak. All right, <laughs> unless something interesting happens, which probably will. So. Hey, Let's... I I have something to share. Oh, please. Do. Oh, is it going to be derogatory towards me? <laughs> okay, please share. Damn. Pew. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Been you, a while. You, it, well, that was that was a premature pew. All right. <laughs> it was a segue. Which it may be uh, a problem in your life. Let's get to the science blasting. Well, there we go. As Dale said, let's do science blast. Science blast. <laughs> Boom. Pew. Carolina doing. Me too. Pew. Pew. <laughs> there we go. Awesome. Carolina doing. Good. Carolina. I want to share the uh, the shame of having to do the pew every week. So please, everyone join in. You know it's the highlight of your week. Okay, it is. <laughs> All right, Science Blast. Well, Delbert, what is your Science Blast? Did you guys, again, I never listened to the shows. I mean, ever. But did you guys talk last week about the uh, retra- possible retraction of the nature study on the uh, the acid, acid shock stem cells? We did not, um, and what? I was it was uh, near the top of my list of things to talk about this week, and I'm glad I didn't. So uh, why don't you inform us? Well, I actually wasn't going to talk about that because I thought for sure you guys would have covered it. <laughs> can you give so, Can you give a ten second? <laughs> so people are waiting with bated breath to hear. So hear about there this. are two reasons why. I, I don't know if it's officially retracted. I think that it's science or nature, rather. 
it was published in yeah nature right and they i just read the article quickly like week before last and they had said there were two reasons one was um there have been reports that none of the experiments have been repeated which isn't that un you know unbelievable that can happen a lot usually your proteins or cells work well in your hands and it's a somewhat difficult experiment but there is also accusations that uh, some of the data has been uh, republished so it was fr- it was already published before oh. and that it's like the incorrect figure or the incorrect data that was used in one of the figures and so it seems right now that most likely uh, both of those articles will be pulled, which is pretty sad. But and, and rare for nature. Uh, yeah. I wish. <laughs> Not, maybe I don't know how rare. Uh, so made me think of the story today that PLOS came out. We all know about PLOS. It's one of the largest um, scientific publishing venues, usually online. And they have a new policy that they just talked about today, February 24th, is that all data in every journal, with very, very few exceptions, has to be made available to the public. Hey, we talked about this. Yeah, yeah. I like that. They made the decision. So uh, what did they say? They are revising their data sharing policy for all PLOS journals. Authors must make all data publicly available without restriction immediately upon publication of the article. And this starts on March 3rd. So Wow. So this is raw data. If someone wants the Excel of all of your 3,000 yep. time points, you have to... Now, is it upon request or do you have to submit it with the article? No, do you know? It has to be in one of... Th- so what do they mean by publicly available? There's three ways. You can have it in the body of the manuscript. So studies where the data set is small enough to be thrown into a table. In the supporting information, so they recommend for moderately sized data sets that can be reported in large tables or as compressed files, which can then be downloaded. And then finally, what we had talked about in a stable public repository, and it sounds like they're not setting any hard or fast rules. Um, They're kind of leaving that up, I guess, to the researchers, but they say that it has to provide an accession number or digital object identifier for every data set. Um, and that they say there are many repositories that specialize in specific data types and that these are particularly suitable for very large data s- sets. They say that like the only exceptions at this point that they would have is stuff that would um, relate to endangered species prob- possibly or, of course, private patient data. So this is great. This is, I think, a very positive approach by them and hopefully, you know, they're they're a powerhouse in the public scientific publishing world so hopefully other journals will follow suit that is very cool especially because uh if, if if true fraud is involved it's very hard to hide that in large data sets people with big giant brains and massive phds in statistical engineering can can generally pull out fake data you know what i mean they're very good at it a lot of people have, have gotten in big trouble for for the fake data they've done because they've been basically forced to show the original data which of course er- turned out to be doctored and people can pull these things out so i think it will it keeps uh those who are going to be honest honest and those who wouldn't probably from publishing so i completely yeah, I, agree <clears throat> i th- i think it's great it you know i think i've mentioned before how you know the data is the data and where, as the researcher, as the publishing researcher, you get a little bit of license in your conclusion and in your discussion to sort of extrapolate it, perhaps, or talk about the larger implications. But you should never really, like, that sort of, like, 
quote-unquote selling, if you will, which is necessary in science, should never happen on the data itself. And I think that this one step, I mean, can you imagine? It's one thing to get all your data together and stick it in a graph and, you know, make sure that that's perfect. But can you imagine how much on your toes you would be if you had to actually publish all of the data that's underneath each of those points? I, I think it's going to make hopefully increase the quality of the uh, research that's going to be out there. Well, I think when you put that that quantitating box around your Western blot, you're going to be a little more careful about your margins. You know what I mean? Oh, you know what? I was re I was reading a paper for Journal Club the other day, and their Western blot was so faked. Oh, yeah? Like, their controls were a perfect mirror image. It was six lanes, and lane one and lane six, literally you could just fold it in half, and they were mirror images Ooh, of each other. You should call them out. And the thing is, it didn't really matter, because they had, like, they corroborated their own data. Like, it was actually a really well-done paper because they had so much data, but just this one Western blot, I was like, somebody screwed up their controls, and they just put one in there. Huh. Like, all the other ones looked legit. Like, they had the whole gel. In fact, that was what was weird about it. They had the whole gel on all of them except that one. On that one, they had their lane that they wanted and their control lane, and they were separate pictures, and they were totally different gels, you could tell. Cool. So... Okay, I've got a science blast too, and then we're going to move on to the meat of the sandwich. So, uh, have you guys heard of something called Pseudomonas syringae? Uh, I can't even come up with a good joke. No. Yeah, <laughs> no. I had not either, but it actually has a very, very cool function and, uh, and, and unique use in our society. So, I got this, uh, this article off Boing Boing uh, website, and there's a nice little video that I'll put in the show notes associated with it. It's just a 13-second uh, YouTube clip here. But this little bacteria, Pseudomonas syringae, has a very nice little trick up its sleeve in that it has a very unique extracellular protein called the ice nucleating protein. So if you don't know what nucleation is, uh, it's it's basically used um, in supercooling. So if uh, uh, what what a lot of people don't know is if you have a very uh, pure water, if you just have even a not so pure but close to pure, and you cool it very carefully, very slowly, and in a very um, smooth container, you can actually cool it well below its freezing point and have it remain in liquid form. As a matter of fact, if you're extremely careful and use the right conditions, you can go as far as minus 55 degrees Celsius before it will force itself into a... Um, force itself to go into uh, uh, into a, a solid. And it's the same goes with uh, with heating water. If you have a very pure water, it can go as high as 250 degrees Celsius, which is two and a half times the boiling point before it will actually boil. And this has to do with the very unique aspect of hydrogen bonding and how water is uh, is able to form these, these structures and in, in, in a hydrogen bond is very strong. So um, so that's your, that's, your, that's your primer there. So biologist Mark Martin of the University of Puget Sound, he found that by, you could super cool water, or he gave a demonstration of this, to approximately minus 6 degrees Celsius. Then you put a very, very, very small amount of this bacteria, this uh, Pseudonomus syringae, uh, into the ice water, and it instantly turns into a frozen uh, ice block, essentially. And it's because on the outside of the bacteria, it has a very specific protein, which is very creatively named ice nucleating protein, which allows for the supercooled water to immediately change from water into ice, like right off the bat. And the idea is that this uh, the structure of this protein 
forms a nucleate nucleation site and you can actually do this in your own freezer if you want if you Brita filter some water get most of the impurities out you put a bottle of water in the freezer for uh, somewhere between an hour to two hours before it actually starts freezing itself. And I've done this before. If you pull it out and you flick the container really hard, you're actually causing a disruption of those hydrogen bonds. And you'll see it turn into the slushy mix in front of your eyes from water to slushy like, like, like within two seconds. It's actually a really cool thing. But this bacteria itself forms its own sort of nucleating protein uh, has its own nucleating protein on the outside and it causes this to happen. So why would this one bacteria form this specific protein? They have some theories behind it. And uh, one of the leading theories is that rather than uh, if this bacteria wants to spread locations, especially in cool environments, rather than just spreading in the air kind of short distances from one plant to the next, this bacteria can actually go higher up into the atmosphere with wind currents. If it hits a small drop of water, forms into an ice crystal and it can be blown high into the atmosphere where it it goes maybe even miles before it comes down and settles down that's one of the leading theories right now but we don't know for sure and uh i, I was ready to call bs a little bit on this because i'm like well geez i like you can use almost anything to nucleate a, a hypercooled liquid or a superheated liquid you can use boiling chips like we use in the lab you can flick it like i said almost anything will do it so it didn't seem like much of an advantage but this protein is real. They actually use it in commercial snow machines. If you watch the Sochi Olympics or basically any you've gone skiing where they needed to use snow machines, they actually use extremely small amounts of this protein in the water mix, and it will form really nice snow because it nucleates the water as it hits the atmosphere. It's not just being cooled. There's a there's a there's this aspect involved. So a lot of a lot of snow making machines use this. So thought that was pretty cool. Uh, hadn't heard of it before. That's, interesting that's it nucleation you can actually do a more fun experiment for nucleation by dropping a mentos in a diet soda bottle <laughs> <laughs> that's a great example right <laughs> that uh that's that that soluble carbon dioxide uh, rapidly uh decides it no longer wants to be in that liquid right yeah it, it stops being dissolved in the liquid and becomes a gas and just goes Phew. right because mentos has yeah, massive nucleating sites. yeah that's a well yes. cool all right well Boom. I'm, I'm nervous because Dell's here, and I keep waiting for the hammer to drop, telling me to move on. So well, I'll preempt it, and I'll say we're moving on to the meat oh, of the sandwich. Very good. You can't boom each segment, Christian. I can. I can it boom takes it 50 away. different times in 10 seconds, and you could go back and edit them out if you really wanted to. <laughs> Carolina has our meat. What do you have for us today, Carolina? A fish sandwich. Mmm. Mmm. Mm. Today we're talking about omega-3s and fish oil. <clears throat> so, um, I decided to do this topic because one of my friends yesterday, who's really into uh, getting into, into CrossFit, was saying she was reading... Um, an article on the CrossFit's website about this guy who weighs like 1,400 pounds and he lost 400 pounds in six months by going on the zone diet and taking a pretty large amount of fish oil. I think he was doing like six or seven fish oil pills a day. And What's so she was the zone asking, diet? Is that like protein? Um, it basically has you um, count your macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbs, and um, it has you kind of put it into blocks. 
So it's sort of like aiming for a certain percentage. Um, it's it's just like a convenient way of of counting your macros and still following like a generally healthy diet. Gotcha. So so I'm pretty sure that this guy lost all that weight just because um, he was on a calorie restricted diet, not so much from the fish oil. But she did have a lot of questions for me, so hopefully I can get some of those questions answered for her and also for our entire audience. So um, there are, well, omega-3 fatty acids are considered um, an essential fatty acid because they're, they're necessary for a healthy metabolism and um, brain development in um, in babies and children and uh, vision development. Uh, they also continue to be important um, in adults as well for, for brain health and eye health. And they're considered essential because you, you can't make them um, in your body. You have to get them from your diet. Uh, so both omega-3s and omega-6s, which are two different types of fatty acids that are um, classified by where they have a, a double um, uh, assist double bond on their on their structure. Both of those kinds are essential, but in the the traditional American diet, we we get more than enough omega-6 just from canola oil, uh, meats, and all the foods that we eat. So we're getting a ratio of about 30 to 1 in general of omega-6 to omega-3. Do you know what um, um, olive oil, does that have either? Yeah, olive oil is actually pretty high in uh, omega-3. Okay. And it's it's high in a certain type of omega-3. It has a lot of um, ALA, which is um, which is a, basically it's considered like a vegetarian form of omega-3. It's found in olive oil and flax seeds and walnuts. And it's the, a precursor for um, two more more important forms of omega-3. Um, they're called EPA and DHA, and those are the ones that your body um, your body is able to use um, for, for brain health and eye health. And basically what, what, what happens is if you get ALA in your diet from olive oil and flax seeds and walnuts, um, your body is able to convert some of that into the active forms of EPA and DHA. But the conversion is pretty inefficient. Like You can only convert about 5 to 10% of uh, the ALA that you consume into the active form. So there are also foods that already have just the EPA and the DHA in them um, that you can get for maximum benefit. And so um, the foods that are highest in just EPA and DHA are fatty fish, so like salmon, mackerel, trout, uh, sturgeon. And th- those, are, those are the main source. And the reason those fish have so much omega-3 in them is because they eat algae. And algae is actually... A great source of um, of EPA and DHA. People are really into algae too, right? Yeah, like those like superfood drinks and stuff that are green. Aren't they algae based or something like that? Mm-hmm. And I never really understood that, but um, I guess in light of this and and finding out that uh, fish are high in omega threes because of algae, probably makes sense why people do the algae uh, algae shakes. Uh-huh. And actually, there's <laughs> there there's a some interesting new uh, manufacturing process for for eggs where basically they they make eggs that come from chickens that are fed an algae diet and so the chicken eggs become higher in the EPA and DHA but it makes the eggs taste kind of fishy I've heard this before interesting yeah so um, basically fish oil the specifically the EPA and DHA components are um, very popular for preventing heart disease, and the FDA approved um, a health claim back in 2004 saying that um, 
that fish oil may um, reduce your risk for developing cardiovascular disease. And this is largely based on research that uh, has shown that EPA and DHA can decrease your uh, triglyceride levels. So triglycerides are a type of fat that's found in your blood, and uh, a significant amount of research has shown that that omega-3s are very very effective in lowering triglyceride levels. Um, also, a modest effect on lowering blood pressure. Um, newer research is coming out, though, that uh, it's not really helping with decreasing incidence of stroke, and um, that it might not be as cardioprotective as once thought. So it's, uh, it's kind of come into question whether or not you should take fish oil, and there have been some, some negative side effects that have come to light as well. Like people, um, men specifically, men have been shown to have a, a higher risk for developing prostate cancer. Um, than women? If, <laughs> than women. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yes, much, much more likely. <laughs> but actually men are more likely to develop uh, prostate cancer uh, if their um, blood levels of omega-3 are higher. There was a, a study that came out in, I believe it was 2011, that here, let me grab the exact details of it. Um, a 71% increased risk of high-grade prostate cancer um, was associated with high concentrations of EPA and DHA hmm. in the blood. Um, and what they did is they took a look at, um, uh, I think I mentioned this trial before when I was talking about multivitamins. It was the SELECT trial, which was a selenium and vitamin E cancer prevention trial. They looked at um, just about 1,400 men. They looked at their um, blood samples. These men all had uh, been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And they found that the lowest risk for developing prostate cancer was in people who had, in men who had a 3.2% blood level of omega-3 compared to 5.7% in the high-risk group. So that's really interesting because it's not, it's not super well understood why um, a higher blood level of omega-3 would lead to increased prostate cancer risk. They think that maybe it's related to um, omega-3s being um, oxidized and turning into compounds that can damage DNA. Hmm. Um, so they don't have a I mechanism at this point? It's just, it's just corollary as far as you know? Right, exactly. And so, you know, the, the authors of the research said that men shouldn't necessarily change their diet because of this. You shouldn't avoid eating fatty fish. Um, you shouldn't necessarily not supplement with fish oil because you're concerned about prostate cancer. But if you know if you have a pretty strong, strong background in your family, a lot of people, a lot of men in your family have developed prostate cancer, it might be something to be careful of. So this is the only study I found that was looking at prostate cancer and risk. My understanding, and in, in, I know this isn't part of this, but that the um, one of the largest factors of prostate cancer was was red meat is that been your experience as well yes yes and um like a low fiber diet low fi so high fiber red meat is probably your your greatest way to reduce your your chance of prostate cancer yeah okay yeah but um um, so, so there have been, there have been other, omega-3s are, um, anti-inflammatory in the body because, um, they're a precursor for, um, for prostaglandins. So they, they help reduce inflammation. And so there's been a lot of research trying to see if, um, omega-3s help with reducing complications associated with asthma and allergies and if it helps with muscle recovery after workouts and, um, most, 
there, there, there's not really a lot of evidence supporting any of that, but there is some suggesting that um, taking omega-3s can reduce um, the severity of symptoms in rheumatoid arthritis. So it is mm. helpful for some things like yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so um, basically a, a good dose, a good amount of um, omega-3 to get is uh, 1.6 grams a day for men and 1.1 grams for women. Um, and this is just of, of all kinds of omega-3s. So the, the form that needs to be converted to EPA and DHA, that ALA form, um, and they don't really, they don't give a specific amount of EPA and DHA that you should get. Um, most doctors will recommend getting about um, 1,000 milligrams a day, which is um, the amount that you get in uh, usually in two fish oil pills if you were to supplement or if you were to just get it from food sources, which I would pretty strongly recommend because you get other benefits from food than just the, just the supplement form. Uh, would, that would be like having two or three servings of uh, six ounces of fatty fish a week. Oh, just a week. Okay, that's that's yeah. not that's not unreasonable, especially yeah, if you're doing the uh, the walnuts and the almonds and all that other said flaxseed. There's other sources, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, by actually, by if you go by um, by weight, flax seeds are much richer in omega three than even fatty fish, but they have that that less active form of omega three that needs to be converted first into EPA and DHA. So you'd have to do a pretty comparatively large amount of uh, flaxseed in place of fish oil. Right. But you can't get it from vegetarian sources. Huh. So I can't say necessarily that you should be taking fish oil supplements, but um, getting your two to three servings of fatty fish a week is probably a good idea just for getting adequate intake. Um, and most of the research that has come out has um, has not deciphered the benefits between just getting it from food sources and getting it from supplement sources. Right. Now, I know this wasn't part of your, your little speech here, um, but uh, you'd mentioned something that you did in a class that I, I didn't know about and I found really interesting about uh, grass-fed versus grain-fed beef. Oh, right, yes. So so um, I mentioned that sea animals get most of their omega-3s in their flesh from, from eating algae, but land animals like cows get their omega-3s from eating grass. So grass-fed beef actually has a, a higher content of omega-3s than corn-fed beef. And um, back when I was an undergrad in biochem, we did uh, we did an analysis of grain-fed versus uh, versus grass-fed beef, and we found that it, it actually is richer in the omega threes. So that could be a very good source of omega threes if you don't eat fish or if you're allergic to fish. Um, I mean, if, you, if you're if you're a vegetarian but not strict vegan, another option would be like the uh, the omega three fortified eggs that come from hens that are fed on algae <laughs> and grass. And actually, hens can also be fed flaxseed and walnuts and chia and other things that are rich in omega threes as well. Very cool. Yep, so that's that's about all I have. I, I I was a little short on time today, but figured I'd keep it short and sweet. No, it's perfect. So uh, that's you, what we like. If, awesome. <laughs> you're like Scott. Listen to her. <laughs> um, if I hear you right, uh, uh, omega threes, omega six is important. Uh, getting it from natural sources is always preferable to a pill because of other uh, cofactors and other elements in there. And uh, grain fed over, or sorry, uh, grass fed over grain fed beef, if possible. Absolutely. It's that simple. Perfect. Thank you for the for the little sum up. Unless you have a prostate, then we just don't know. 
yeah, then, you know, stay tuned. Right. <laughs> well, science does, is never determined from a single article. It sounds like that's a single source right now. It may end up being something. And I, I kind of goes back to that's what the, the media loves to glom onto a single published article and make it fact in the public's eyes. So they could very easily oh, be yes. like, turns out Omega-3 gives you prostate cancer. You know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. my news voice. Um, and <laughs> so if you want prostate cancer. All right. <laughs> um, so it's, a, it's an interesting finding, but it by no means is a consensus. And, um, and so I think the overwhelming majority of articles point to the fact that it's uh, regardless of your, whether you're male or female, it's, it's very beneficial to take these uh, supplements. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's move awesome. on to Cells and Shit. Cells and Shit. Christian Copley Salem will be your host for this latest tale of the microscopic and macabre world of your cells. Cells and shit. Sweet. So we're trying to uh, we're trying to get into this whole routine of you know making the podcast a little shorter. So I'm going to go through some interesting stuff to me, but everyone else is going to hate it. But I'm going to talk about <laughs> malaria, okay? Because I love parasites oh, and people don't like them. Most people don't say I love malaria. Usually, never. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I love I love awesome. learning about malaria. Yeah, I, I love malaria too, but you know, it's bad. People with sickle so. cell love malaria. Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. Well, they they hate it less, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, malaria actually means bad air. Um, if you break the word down, malaria, it literally just means bad air, um, because they used to think that malaria came through the air because they didn't know any better, them being people. But um, every hour, 200 people die from malaria. Um, in Africa, I believe half of the population has been exposed to it. That may be worldwide or just in Africa. I couldn't find that exact statistic. But um, lots and lots of people are exposed to malaria. And it has a huge economic cost in the areas where it is most prevalent because they are um, a lot of third world jungly kind of countries and um, tropical tropical regions and someone gets malaria they're down they can be down for six months and if you're a farmer and your job is to farm you aren't doing any farming when you have malaria so um, it can cause all kinds of economic problems Um, symptoms include headache chills cold um, which sounds odd that you can like but then you get an intense fever. So basically you go cold and hot. You cycle through cold and hot. Um, and it's kind of ugly. Um, and what it is, is it is a parasite. It is a single-celled eukaryotic organism, because we all love eukaryotes here. Um, it comes in a few different versions. There is um, malaria, tertian malaria, and quatern malaria. And tertian means that you go through three cycles of the disease, and tertian means you go through four cycles of the disease. Or, I'm sorry, quaternary is four cycles, tertian is three cycles. I'm on, I'm on drugs. Um, <laughs> but all of that is not as important as the fact that there is another kind of malaria called malignant tertian malaria, and that is the malaria that everybody thinks of when they say, ooh, malaria. Um, it's called plasmodium falciparum. Is the name of the animal mm. that causes it, and it is the one that really that can cause death pretty easily. Um, I'm going to go through the life cycle real quick, just a short version of it, not the complex, annoying version of it. 
And then we're going to talk about a little bit of how that life cycle causes the symptoms and then um, why it's really, really bad. Um, what happens is mosquitoes carry the larva of this in their saliva. So when they bite people, most people know that mosquitoes pass malaria, um, the Anopheles mosquito, actually. So the mosquito bites you and it injects um, its saliva into your skin, and that's where the parasites enter. They get into the bloodstream and they go straight to the liver. Well, sort of. Um, 25% or so of them make it to the liver. The other 75% just sort of die in random places in your body, um, which that's always a lovely thought. But the ones that make it to the liver, um, they grow and mature, and then they come out of your liver. And this is where it gets ugly for you or whoever you are having malaria. They invade your red blood cells. Um, and if you know anything about red blood cells, you know that they are non-nucleated. They do not have a nucleus. They're basically just sacs of hemoglobin. So the red, the red blood cell is basically just a plasma membrane and some hemoglobin stuff inside. So the parasite goes in there, uses it as a shelter. It hides from your immune system inside because there's no nucleus, there's no signaling, there's no nothing. Um, it replicates like mad and then bursts out of your red blood cells. Well, there's the first problem. Um, you're losing your red blood cells, and that's bad because that's your oxygen carrier. So not only did you experience a high fever when you were first infected, that fever went away when the parasite hid inside your red blood cells. It burst out, boof, the fever comes back. Um, and now you're, you have a horrible fever and you're anemic because you have no red blood cells. Um, the really bad part about especially uh, malignant tertian malaria, it, the hemoglobin that's in the red blood cells is actually toxic to the malaria parasite. So normally, if your red blood cells break, your body collects all of the heme that is in there and recycles it back into new red blood cells. So it captures all of the hemoglobin, the important part, the iron-containing heme. It captures all of that and puts it back into other red blood cells. The malaria parasite actually changes the, um, the heme group chemically so your body can't recycle it. So not only are you losing red blood cells, but the heme that you would be recycling, the iron in your blood, is being flushed out because it's no longer usable. So not only is the parasite killing your red blood cells, but it's killing your ability to make red blood cells, um, which is ugly. So if you're in a third world country and you do not have access to something as simple as an iron supplement, not only are you going to be sick from this for several months, but then you're going to spend months with anemia from low iron. Now, I, so, you may have already said this, I apologize, but okay. what's the importance of the heme group in iron? It carries the oxygen. It's actually what binds, chemically binds to the oxygen to carry it through the blood. Okay. Um, and that iron, that's why you eat iron. <laughs> I mean, among other things, but that's the main reason that you need a steady source of iron. Um, and if you have malaria, you're, you're in deep trouble, especially if you don't have access to iron supplements hmm. or iron supplementation. Um, a lot of these people don't have access to any medical care at all. So... They're going through these cycles of fever because the malaria parasite, once it breaks out of your blood cells, it goes back into them again and repeats that cycle. Um, and it does that three or four times. 
tertian malaria being three and quaternary malaria being four. Hmm. Um, and then it actually kills itself off. It goes away. You don't have it anymore. Um, with the exception of tertian malaria, or uh, malignant tertian malaria. Malignant meaning it sticks around, and it sticks around in your liver. So the initial site of infection is the liver, and if you have plasmodium falciparum, you can have it for life because it will hide in your liver. So even though it goes through its cycle and then kills itself off at the end of its three um, repeats through your blood cells, it's still there. The other ones tend to go away. They, they don't hide out in your liver like this, but this one's bad. Um, from a biochemical perspective, it's kind of interesting. Once the parasite finishes that cycle, it actually becomes sexually reproductive because all of these previous iterations have been asexual. They just split. They're like bacteria. They just split. Um, but once they get to the sexual stage, that's the part that's picked up by the mosquito again. Hmm. So I, I, I was ignorant to that. I, did, I thought all parasitic um, kind of... Uh, life was 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 asexual. Oh yeah, no, tapeworms too. are sexual. Tapeworms de- and a lot of parasites develop ma- male and female characteristics at a certain point in their life cycle, but they remain asexual other points of their life cycle. Um, and sometimes, like there's one parasite I can't remember the name of it. It's, it's a worm, and its female is this giant worm thing, and the male's like a tiny little worm that just sort of sits on it. But <laughs> They do have specific sexual differentiation. Some, some do. Um, and malaria does. And it develops its gametes, and the gametes are picked up by the mosquito, and then the gametes mate in the mosquito, and their offspring are what go into the saliva to be reinjected into another person. That's horrific. Uh, you need it's to, you, awesome. You, 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 <laughs> have you ever seen those, um, those, uh, back, those parasites that, that take over the ants and they make them into these zombie ants? Yep. Can you talk about those one show? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. We talked a little bit about those on my Parasite Countdown show. I do remember, but we need to go into more detail because those are fascinating yeah. and I don't know about them. We can them. totally do that. Okay. Um, hemozoan, by the way, is what malaria converts heme to. Um, I don't know what it looks like, but that's what it is. Um, the, uh, the, tertia- the malignant tertiary malaria is terrible. Um, it causes all kinds of crazy stuff in third world countries. People can't, you know, can't farm, can't do anything. The drugs they have for malaria suck. Um, quinine was the original. And Tonic water. Yeah. They used it until 1940, in which case, until which point malaria became resistant to it. And now it no longer works. Do you, um, know, do you know about quinine and tonic water? I have a question about it, if you do. I do not. Okay. Well, I just, it's a very, very bitter taste, and I assumed that, kind of like, a, you know, IPA, how, like, these beers were made super strong so that they could survive the trip to India without going bad, and then people just develop a taste for it because it was already, you know, just what was available, and people were drinking it, and blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I assumed quinine was the same way in which it's a very bitter largely unpleasant taste but people develop a taste for it because it was used to treat malaria and they were forced to drink it i don't know yeah yeah i don't know um that was replaced actually by chloroquine which also became they became resistant to it um chloroquine actually didn't attack the parasite directly 
it blocked that heme conversion. Mm. This is this is kind of an interesting thing for me anyway. I think so. Um, so the heme to hemozoan conversion was blocked by chloroquine, and malaria went through nine mutations before it could become resistant to it. Isn't that crazy? It took nine mutations for that for that parasite to be like, oh, you're done. Because it basically had to rework its whole conversion process to get around it. Huh. And now that drug is useless. Um. <laughs> well, when you look at a parasite, it's so, I mean, it, by the definition of a parasite, it is it survives by leeching off another organism. It cannot do it yeah. without. So it would yeah. make sense that it's developed a rapid, evolutionarily advantageous way to, to change itself if, if the host isn't so amicable anymore, you know? Yeah, and like it, parasites are a little bit like a virus. They reproduce really fast in really big numbers. So um, things like mutations happen rapidly. And because they have a lot of asexual reproduction, you get a lot of mutations that just by random, you get a huge selection of mutations that you can, that get selected for. So um, it's kind of crazy. So the best way to control malaria is bed netting. Still does. That's 25 cents is That's still the best solution. Exactly, exactly. That's one of the best things we've got. The other thing is either kill the mosquitoes or what they've been thinking about doing is vaccinating the mosquitoes. So the mosquito can't, because of, you know, negative side effects, all these people have all this crap. We don't care if mosquitoes get nauseous. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they're actually trying to inoculate mosquitoes against malaria so that the parasite can't, the parasite has to have that mosquito host or else it can't propagate. Um, so yeah, there's a few other drugs that they just fiddled around with, but nothing, and sort of vaccinations and things, but those are really sort of pointless, um, just because they're going to develop resistance to it. Right. So killing, killing the mosquitoes and or inoculating the mosquitoes is probably the best strategy for malaria. So there's moral of the story is don't travel to Africa. Well, and it's it's funny too because when you, like one of my first thoughts goes to if we're thinking of the future is like oh well, why don't we just have like a uh, gene therapy for this but kind of like to your point it doesn't matter what we do when if you're dealing with a parasite or a bacteria that rapidly evolves you can make changes to your own genome that are relatively it doesn't it doesn't matter uh, they're going to be quickly defeated you know what I mean yeah yeah so we'll and always have issues. Every one of these suckers goes into a red blood cell. So say there's 10,000, they're called merozoites, but let's say there's 10,000 malaria parasites in your blood. Each one of them goes into a red blood cell and turns into 10,000 more. So now you have 10,000 times 10,000. That happens three times. These suckers are everywhere. You can blood stain for malaria. All you have to do is prick yourself and rub it on a slide and you'll see they're swarming. That's it's horrific. disgusting, but awesome all at the same time. <laughs> So yeah, they got a lot of chances to to mutate. Well, cool. Well, we appreciate the uh, the macabre and disgusting update, Christian. That is the point of cells and shit. And I love me you know, some honestly, malaria. I think, so. And I think malaria is the main reason that I would not want to go to Africa. Yeah. Everything else sounds so cool. I don't want to leave the U.S. Thanks. But <laughs> it is treatable. It's not like getting Hep C or something. You know, if, I imagine yeah. it's with, not a big deal for for. Okay, let me rephrase that. It isn't nearly as big a deal for somebody who has access to Western medicine, right? And iron supplements. That's really the big thing: is access to iron supplements. So, is 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 that part of the treatment? Is is giving an iron supplement? That's all they're doing is treating the symptoms. Yeah. 
They're keeping mm. you healthy through the fever cycle, and then they're replacing the iron that you lose from the hemoglobin conversion. That's it. It's it's funny how we can create clones of animals and the we almost created life de novo, but at the same time, a very simple <laughs> parasite will 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 take you down, and there's nothing we can do about it. Because in simple in simple terms, life's a crafty bitch. <laughs> that's yeah. it. That should be your tagline. That's it. it is. Oh my god, that's awesome. Life's a crafty bitch. Awesome. Yep. Well, cool. Good times. Did um anyone else have anything to add? Is Del still alive? Delbert. I'm still alive. He's an active listener, or passive mm-hmm. listener. I don't know. One or the. <laughs> <laughs> He's watching the clock. He is watching the clock. <laughs> He's on it. But look, we're at 47 minutes, which means it's probably a good time to close out the show. Boom. Delbert, you want to take us out this time? You want to tell people what to do? I think you guys should tell your mom and your dad and your friends that you just listened to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast Boom. and you feel so much better about yourself and science in general. Well, I I, I think Boom is mine. I don't think Scott can Boom. I, uh, I don't, I, I don't did think you copyright so. it? Trademark? I might have. I didn't think so. I, got, I stole it from a commercial, fair and square, so I think that makes it mine. <laughs> All right. Well, um, with that, <laughs> follow us on Twitter. We actually are trying to update it more regularly. Follow us. No, no, on... no, 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 no. Use reverse psychology. What? Don't go to our Twitter page. Oh. Don't go to Facebook. Oh, that's right. And don't leave us any comments. You're probably not cool enough, and um, <laughs> only we, we might sure not accept you, you on the Twitter you feed. To us. We might unfriend you if you follow us on Facebook, so be careful. Oh Make sure God. you're qualified. <laughs> you're qualified. <laughs> We'll see you listen to weeks. us in two weeks. Yes, and if you didn't hear at the top of the show, we are taking next week off, but we will be back in two weeks, and um, we look forward to seeing everyone. Really, though, please follow us. We want you to <laughs> Yell didn't mean it. Couldn't hold on to it. Couldn't no. hold on to it. Had to beg. And with that, I'll say boom. Boom. <laughs> Bye, everyone. All right, thanks for listening. Peace out. Carolina? Yes. Okay, bye. good. <laughs> you know what I forgot to say? <laughs> like, yeah, bye. One of the coolest things in Death Valley was the uh, – uh, oh, no, 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 no. The show's over. We've moved on. It, <laughs> the, the, don't worry about the time here. But uh, at the place we stayed, there was actually something called a borax museum because that's one of the minerals wow. that's been mined there. Oh, and it, always, it made me think instantly. I'm like, that sounds like something you would be um, – you would be threatened with by a boss. They're like, you keep this up. You'll be working at the Borax Museum in Death Valley. It's like, could you think of a greater, like, like, could you be more shunned from society than working oh at the Borax gosh. Museum in Death Valley? I don't think so. Well, I don't I'm, know. Borax is pretty cool. It makes oobleck. It makes what? <laughs> they called it oobleck. Like, back in, I think it was sixth grade earth science, we combined borax with water or something. And it and it it makes like this kind of uh, semi liquid, semi solid substance. It's like crazy when you squeeze it, it becomes um, solid, and when you release it, oh, those liquid. have a term. Uh, it's yeah, I, with, I know. Um, I can't cornstarch and water or something where um, yeah, you'll sink through it, but if you jump on it, it's like it's like really hard, like a rubber mat. Yeah. Um, uh huh. Oh, what are those called? Amorphous solids, or it's something? I don't remember. Something like that. Yeah, that yeah. sounds right. Yeah. Oh. Apparently, I didn't learn much in that class because all I remember is it was called Ubla. <laughs> in sixth grade, it's meant to inspire you to enjoy the science. Clearly. <laughs> so, um, next week then. 
or so, two okay, weeks. Okay, wait, no, not next week. So it's going to be a Sunday morning again, right?